0: with Grace, I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, writer, medievalist, and super fan of English literature. For that reason, I am so thrilled today to welcome Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor to Old Books with Grace. And Dr. Pryor is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's the author of several books, um, including Booked Literature in the Soul of Me and the book we're gonna talk more about today on reading well, finding the good life through great books. And her writing has also appeared in other venues like Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and and many others. She's a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education, a senior fellow at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and is a former member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. So that's kind of a cool, different uh, side to what you do as well. And she and her husband live on a hundred-year-old homestead in Central Virginia with a lot of animals and a lot of books. (laughs) So welcome, Dr. Pryor. I'm so excited that you're here with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be with you.
0: Um, So today, Dr. Pryor is on to chat with us about On Reading Well and specifically about that book's topic, which is what literature has to offer us about um, thinking through the life of virtue. And this is something that, um, as those of you who have been listening for a while already know, I am deeply passionate about. But before we get into the book, I have a couple questions for Dr. Pryor. First what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago?
1: Well, it is hard because I have a few, um, you know, I have like four that are probably my favorite, but from the four,
0: you can name all four if you really I can can't Yes, absolutely. Okay. Oh, you're
1: so nice. Okay. <laughs> so my favorite four are um, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, and Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert.
0: Oh, what a list. And I'm really, really happy to hear that you are a Charlotte Bronte over Emily Bronte reader. Definitely team oh, Charlotte, team Charlotte. 100%. I, <laughs> yes. I am not on team Emily. God bless her, but just Jane Eyre is definitely superior to Wuthering Heights. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, and my second question for all folks who come on Old Books with Grace, which literary character do you most identify with and why?
1: Um, that answer would probably change depending on the day that you ask me. Mm-hmm. But um, I recently have had a conversation um, that will be on my podcast that comes out sometime in the next few months probably, um, Jane and Jesus, I had a great conversation about um, Mary Bennett <laughs> in Pride <laughs> and Prejudice, who is not really a great character, um, but um, just in that conversation, you know, Mary reads a lot of books, uh-huh. and um, she's very annoying. <laughs> Um, and, but she also, she just has a tendency to, um, live life through books, you know, and mm-hmm. to kind of extract formulas and knowledge, uh, from books and maybe not live it out. So she's not really, I, I mean, I don't want to be like her, but there are just some things, I guess that, um, about Mary that makes me connect with her. And I also just didn't want to give any, you know, like, Stereotypical response. So I'm just gonna say sometimes I feel like Mary Bennett.
0: No, yeah. I, I love that. You know, I've never had a Mary Bennett on before. I've had Elizabeth Bennett's on before. Um, I've had Emma Woodhouses on before, but I have not had a Mary Bennett. Well, there well. There you <laughs> my go. work, my work
1: here is done.
0: <laughs> no, I love that. Um, I will say that I always felt bad for Mary. Like, I, I feel like She's, she's very awkward. That. Yeah, and she's, that's, she's I really definitely awkward. relate to that. Awkward. Yeah, I do yeah. too. And I feel like anybody who knows what it's like to be really uncomfortable at parties and feel like you have to show your like skill set to <laughs> party. <laughs> and you can't a sing. Bit. And you can't sing, but you're stuck. I can't sing.
1: <laughs> I, feel I, like can, I can't sing, it. but I know it. <laughs> Unlike <laughs> right. Mary.
0: Oh, that's probably the, the the downfall of poor Mary <laughs> is the not knowing part. Um, yeah, I always felt bad for her, but she's, you know, it could be worse. You could be a Kitty or Lydia. Yeah. I do do think being a Kitty Bennett would probably be the worst the worst of all of them. So, yeah, I don't know. Lydia, I mean, when you have a Lydia Bennett on, let me know. that will be an interesting <laughs> show to listen to. I know. <laughs> I would be shocked. I mean, this doesn't really seem like Lydia Bennett's cup of tea, but maybe it is. That would be really interesting. Um, well, okay. So I want to just begin with, for the readers out there who haven't had the opportunity to read on reading well, which I really enjoyed and, and definitely recommend to listeners. Um, could you tell us a little bit about it? Could you just give us the the overview?
1: Well, the book is it's kind of a it's a weird book because it's part literary criticism and part virtue ethics and part like me giving a class in literature, kind of talking about literature the way that I do in the classroom, like doing the literary analysis, but also drawing real life connections. Um, and it is organized according to the a number of the classical virtues uh, with a single book or author selected as, as someone, a as sort of a lens through which we can examine this virtue. Um, So yeah, that's my short description. I have a lot more to say, but that's my (laughs) description of it.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that was one of my, and I want to talk more about this in a moment, but that was one of my favorite, um, the organizational schema of it was one of my favorite parts about reading your book um, and actually surprising when I picked it up at the library, I didn't realize that it was organized that way. And then when I started reading it, I loved that it was a virtue and a single work paired together. um, That that was a very cool and unique option for me and I think really narratively drew out a lot of the virtue qualities. But um, why why do you think that it's important to think of the good life of virtue alongside like fiction specifically? What's at mm-hmm. stake in that pairing? Well, um,
1: yeah, I, I think a lot of... <laughs> I I think there are two things going on here. And one is that um, a lot of people dismiss fiction Mm -hmm. these days. They don't think of fiction, you know, I mean, and I'm talking like people who are are serious minded and philosophical and theological, um, they diminish fiction that, you know, the significance of fiction. Yes. And then, Virtue also is a little out of style, like, yes, people really also don't so, yeah, yes, yeah, they, they don't talk about virtue much. And so, of course, I'm a literature lover, I teach literature, I've been a professor for 30 years. Um, and so I, that's my love, but, um, but I actually, so for me, the learning process in writing this book was to learn about virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even actually start out to write this book, I started out, I was just going to write a book about some of my favorite works of literature and kind of the lessons we can learn from them. But my editor suggested that I put something in there about, um, you know, the, the practice of virtue. And hmm. so, um, I put that in my proposal, but then when I sat down, you know, a few months later, uh, when my summer started to, to write the book, I realized I didn't know a lot about virtue. I knew a little bit about the vices from reading about them Mm -hmm. in medieval literature, you
0: know? Totally. (laughs) The vices are always a They're so
1: fun, right. (laughs) And so so I I just thought, well, I need to study a little bit about virtue. And so I started doing research on virtue, ethics and virtues. Um, And as I was doing that, it just came to me that I wanted, because I wanted to learn more about virtues, that I wanted to do that through the lens of literature and that's the book took on a completely different kind of shape than I had, I had planned. Um, but it was really just how I went about learning for myself.
0: And that's how I, I wrote the book to share with my readers what I learned. I, I really, I think that, um, sort of flows out of your book. I think some of my favorite books are books where the writer was writing in order to learn and it wasn't writing in order to share something that they were, you know, uh, already had mastered or, um, I feel like there's this openness and this curiosity that comes when you're writing out of what you're learning. That is really wonderful. Um, so I feel like virtue, you're right, has this baggage with it now. And I think a lot of people Gravitate more towards like value language rather than virtue mm-hmm, language, mm-hmm. Um, but I have this sneaking suspicion that value language may not be actually as helpful in certain ways as virtue language is, um, and I, I'm still thinking about that a lot. That's something that I'm really interested in, but I, I'm wondering if if you could help us a little bit with why narratives can help us to approach virtue and why it's important?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so let me talk a little bit kind of about the difference that I see between values, you know, value language and virtue language. I mean, values are inherently subjective, right? I mean, you know, if I value something, that's something that's internal. Um, And so it's, it's valuable because I value it or someone else values it. And virtue is inherently objective virtue, you know, a synonym for virtue is like excellence. And so something is excellent according to some objective standard, like, you know, an example I like to use, and it's probably from my research or whatever is, is some kind of a tool like a pair of scissors. Like how do you know if a pair of scissors is excellent? Well, you know, it's excellent if it does what it was designed to do well and that's pretty objective um and so values are inherently subjective virtues are inherently objective um and so we might most often um think about literature as as more of the subjective right because these are stories that people tell about themselves and how they feel especially jane eyre with (laughs) my love right (laughs) Right. But the thing is, and this is where I think a lot of people who don't appreciate literature um, go astray, is that, that when we read the stories of other people and we sort of read about their internal experience, there is a kind of measurement that's going on objectively in the sense of we're trying to weigh and judge and discern what's happening, what they're thinking, their actions, whether oh, they should do that or shouldn't do that. I mean, I mean Jane Eyre's, you know, is it is nothing if not subjective and romantic and emotional, right? Exactly. And yet anyone who reads it and discusses it with another person, no spoiler here, but is going to have to wrestle with the question about whether we are happy with the ending and whether, you know, we we will judge the character of Mr. Rochester, right? He will be judged. And so even this highly subjective emotional novel um, requires us or asks us to participate in sort of, these objective kind of decision-makings and e- decision-making and, and judgments. And even if we can't land on something, you know, that's as measurable as a mathematical formula, we're still engaging in that kind of process. We're still exercising the judgment and wisdom and virtue that we need, um, in order to live our own lives.
0: Yeah. I, that was actually, uh, you paraphrased one of my favorite, uh, ideas of yours from the introduction of your book, which is that you're talking about literature embodying virtue, where it's offering images of virtue in action, and then also offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue. And, uh, and you you just, um, that Jane Eyre example really vividly brings that to life. Um, Some folks might object to that by saying that um, reading narrative in order to learn about virtue or practice virtue is only somebody using the book, not Mm. enjoying it. And I know you wouldn't agree with that. Um, How does the aesthetic experience of Mm. reading that is like responding to beautifully written or beautifully conceived artful products, the work relate to this Mm. practice of virtue that you're talking about?
1: No, I'm so glad you raised that question because literature is not, or any kind of art is not something that's supposed to be used um, like a tool. And so to even talk about this subject in my book was a little bit tricky because, because it does seem like I'm just sort of u- using the stories to show how they convey this certain lesson, and that's really not it at all. I mean, uh, one mistake I've heard some readers who either haven't read the book or are new to literature make is, is they they think that. Um, I think that the author set out to write about this virtue yes. in the book. And that's, that's not it at all. All I'm trying to um, say and show through my readings of these books is this is something that happens when we read the book mm. or, or something that can happen when we're reading attentively and we're engaged in this aesthetic experience. This is what books do to mm. us. Oh, um, I really like that. By their very nature, right? Yes. Again, yes. That's what that, makes them excellent.
0: Yes. And that actually reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've read Madeline Lingle's Walking on Water, mm-hmm. which is her reflection on art but she talks about being the servant of the work and she's talking about that from the writer's perspective, being the servant of the work, letting it unfold. But in a funny way, as I'm listening to you talk, I feel like that's also what the reader does as well. We almost become like a, a vessel or a servant for this book that we are also enjoying where it's just really mutual and it's acting upon us as much as we are like reading it um, yeah. No,
1: that's excellent. I mean, And, and the funny thing is I really am in my, my approach to literature. I am, you know, I lean more toward formalism or new criticism, which does see a work of literature or a work of art as a sort of objective thing, an object that we, um, subject ourselves to as we yeah. look at it or read it or study it. And so, um, Aestheticism or aesthetic criticism really is kind of the opposite of um, what we might consider to be, you know, really subjective, like reader response or just you know something that's really about value more than virtue. So mm-hmm. I think that virtue and um, aesthetic understanding and sort of a formalist approach to literature those sort of all go together because they acknowledge the sort of objective thingness. Of the work itself. Yes. Yes. And we just kind of try to appreciate it and understand it.
0: Absolutely. Um so I knew I was gonna really uh love what you were doing after you cited the moral philosopher, the Catholic moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre in your introduction, who I am a, a big fan of his writing on virtue ethics and if there are folks out there listening to the podcast who are interested in reading more about virtue, a really, it's tough, it's demanding, but a really excellent book on virtue ethics is his book after virtue with which Dr. Pryor um, quotes and works with in this introduction. Um, and he talks about how moral language, as you paraphrase him, uh, severed from an understanding of human purpose can really become emptied out. Mm. And I'd like to think a little bit more about how like fiction specifically, narrative specifically can help us to fill out or fill up um, virtuous language that has been sort of culturally emptied.
1: Mm. Yeah. Of course, what McIntyre is talking about there is is what we hit upon earlier is like the replacement of objective um, virtue with subjective values and when we use the same language to talk about those two things, we actually lose track of the fact that, you know, it, well, when I'm teaching, I'll often use this sort of, um, the, these sentences to express the difference um, so my students can understand them. It's the difference between saying, it is good and I like it. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's what McIntyre's talking about. Like that that in, you know, it's objective to say something is good or not good. And it's subjective to say, well, I like it or I don't like it. Yes. And McIntyre is pointing out that we live in an age where we have lost the distinction. So we think that if if I like it, it's good. Yes. And so I think what um what he shows and what what I also agree with about that fiction allows us to sort of experience both of those intention, right? To just yes. as I talked about before, like we're reading someone's sub, a subjective experience from their point of view, but at the same time, you know, we can get sort of immersed in that world, but we don't lose ourselves completely, um, or our own judgments or decisions and or values or. Mm-hmm you know, uh, the, the things that we know and understand. And so we have to weigh that against what we're reading. Um, and so I think it's a, a combination of this. I mean, there's a, there's, you know, to put it in another set of philosophical terms, I mean, we've talked about the objective and subjective. Well, literature exists in the, in the, uh, phenomenon, right? Sort of the, the interplay between objective and subjective. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's, it's great value because that's where we live most of our lives. You know, that's, that's what real life is like is sort of this, the phenomenal space that's that the interplay between objective and subjective experience.
0: Yeah. And I I think too, I I like that idea of this, of literature as this like a meeting space. And it can also um, be thought of as a meeting, as a meeting space between time past and, and time present, where you come up against a word like, Prudence, which basically prudence, Mm -hmm. the virtue prudence is almost a meaningless word for for most folks today. It has really, I mean, people think of a prude or people think of somebody who is prudent with their money. Those are really the dominant. There's no... There's no concept of sort of the giant virtue of prudence that Thomas Aquinas, the medieval philosopher, theologian, was writing about that ruled basically virtuous conduct in many, many places in your life, specifically in uh, your your decision-making capacity. There's no concept of that, right? It's gone. And so meeting prudence in a book of the past makes you go, wait, this isn't the same word I have been using this whole time. This is really something concrete and giant and big that my emptied out word is not working with very well. And so you you have to dive into that and figure out what's going on in a way that I think can be so helpful for clarifying meaning. Yeah. I mean, it's a great example of of McIntyre's
1: emptying out of language, right? This word has been yes. reduced to something that has like two different connotations, both of them negative. Um, and yet it, there's so much involved. Even understanding where the negative connotations come from and how they are connected yes. to the larger virtue of prudence is really helpful because all virtues can be distorted to the point that they become vices, right? Which is yes. what virtue ethics is all about. And so inherent in every virtue is its you know, distortion or its abuse or its lack or its excess um and i, I don't I, there just isn't much that i've found that's more helpful uh, to think about and to to help navigate through life and through development as you know in my character in my and my um you know just myself uh virtue is so helpful
0: yeah yeah i found it i i grew up in a Uh, a background that didn't talk much about virtue. It was um, much more focused on, I mean, just being an American, Mm -hmm. we're exposed to value language much more regularly. And value language is, I think, easier to wield, like, politically, culturally. Um, People, value language can be a very useful tool in that way. Um, and, And so when I was, when I first started reading more virtue ethics and more stories about virtue with virtue explicitly in them especially like all the weird little medieval things that I read where you have these embodied virtues and vices like doing things in th- these strange medieval allegories and you start to go what is going on here um and and I too have just found that enormously helpful um because I think the other pitfall that we've gotten into in modernity is is thinking of virtues like rules, where it's like there are these inflexible conduct categories. You act this way if you are being courageous. You act this way if you're being prudent. When in reality, in narrative, as your book really unfolds very well, there's this whole range of actions that that fall under these virtuous categories that aren't necessarily easy to recognize at first. But then when you do, you begin to see that virtuous action, though it's, it's not uh, subjective. It's really flexible and it flexes Mm -hmm. to fit different lives and different times. And I think one of my favorite examples that I always think about when I think about this issue is when C.S. Lewis talks about this in mere Christianity and he talks about the virtue of of courage, of fortitude and he uses the example of the soldier going over the trenches and how um, that's kind of the soldier' everybody's classic idea of virtue of, of courage, but um, he could just be going over because he seeks the adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you could have somebody who's terrified of cats picking up a cat for a, a very good reason, like one that's been scratching a child or whatever and uh, and that person be acting. With profound courage for their life situation, so this flexibility of it fascinates me, and that's something I I really enjoyed about the pairing with novels is that you see, oh, this was an unexpected virtue to come out of this, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I I really enjoyed that, and I, I no that
1: that's you. that example, especially if the cat, well, both of them are so good at talking about that interplay between the objective and subjective, yes. right? Because. What's courageous for one person might just be you know not for another just a just a, a normal instinct and um yeah that that's and yet we're you know there there is an objective kind of measure that we yes. can you know when we understand all of the factors that are at play um so it I like how you described it as flexible it 's flexible it's not relative in the sense no. of like like you know moral relativism, but flexibility because human situations and circumstances are all different.
0: Yes. Yeah. And um, I think that's what is really beautiful about virtue language specifically is that flexibility is that what's really brave for an elementary school child, you know, going up to talk to the new kids, sitting alone at recess or whatever is different looking than what it's going to be to be brave for you or for me in our Mm -hmm. specific life context. But it it doesn't make it not bravery or right. rel- relative what bravery is, and right. I, yeah, I really enjoyed that idea. Um, so what um, what fiction first caused you to start making connections between the practice and language of virtue and and fiction, basically? Mm. was there a book that you read where you started that's really started to make you think about? virtue and the, the the life of virtue, the good life?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, as I talked about before, I didn't, when I was writing, began to write this book, I wasn't planning on it being one about virtue ethics. And so that came about in the process, but I would say the books that sort of prepared me for it um, are, it, are the the pair of books I talk about in the in the first chapter after the introduction? It's centered on um, Henry Fielding's A History of Tom yeah. Jones, and he in this case this novel is very much about the virtue of prudence, which is what yes. I explore. And I talk a little bit in that um, chapter about sort of Tom Jones was a was a response. It was Fielding's response to Samuel Richardson's earlier novel. Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are both 18th century texts, um, and virtue was really important in the 18th century in ways it isn't now. Um, But reading and teaching those texts over the years has just really helped me to think about virtue. And it's interesting. One point I want to make that goes back to some other things we brought up about how virtue—we um, just don't talk about it that much—and we talk about the emptying of meaning and uh, of some of this language. Um, one reason I think that we don't talk about virtue very much anymore is like prudence, its definition has been narrowed down Absolutely. and become almost entirely negative. And that ha- started to happen with Samuel Richardson in, in- Pamela, which is considered the first English novel, when he said, when he, and again, no spoilers, uh, <laughs> but
0: when he, when he. Can you spoil about, <laughs> a 300 year old book though? Well, <laughs> that's true, but nobody, nobody reads it. That's true. Like, oh, nobody reads Pamela. Class. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. I so read it I in say, grad well, school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: so so when he, he says, describes Pamela as Pamela's virtue as being rewarded and throughout the book, he really means virginity right right and so he's talking about sexual purity yes um and so which is a kind of virtue but Mm -hmm. the problem is is that when you know that's what the word has almost entirely come to mean yes complete narrowing yeah yeah for to to one particular kind of virtue and mainly applies only to women right and right. so these are the kinds of things that makes virtue seem like something that's dead and not relevant and not important today um and so that just for me i mean so pamela and tom jones were really probably the books when i I also didn't read them until grad school. Um, those are the books that really just have had me thinking about virtue the most over over the years and prepared the ground for me, i guess, with it before I even knew it to to write this book
0: yeah, very cool i was when I was writing these questions i was I was thinking about what mine was when i first started and i it wasn't like um conscious when i when i was doing this but i realized for me i think one of the great writers of virtue is louisa may alcott mm. <laughs> in her little women series yes yes um thinking of narrative uh, exempla of of virtue and virtuous people I, I always felt like her characters allowed me to think about virtue as, as I was reading them, you know, in middle school or late elementary school in a way that I wasn't necessarily getting in other books. Mm. And it's funny because she's sometimes criticized for being didactic or preachy, which is definitely a, a flaw in many books, but I don't, I think she, I think she pulls it off, but um it's funny to think about how these things are embedded way back when you are reading things. Um, so which virtue as you were learning, you were talking so much about how you were learning as you were researching and writing and which virtue did you learn the most about while you researched and wrote, which was the most Mm -hmm. kind of challenging and surprising for you? Mm
1: Well, definitely the most challenging one was justice because justice mm. is the only virtue, at least in the ones that I cover, that is not, has sort of like m- most virtues have to do with our inner character. Like, mm-hmm. But justice, we can be a just person that can be related to our inner character, but there also is a social aspect to justice, Mm -hmm. like a society or community being just. And so that's very political. So that was the hardest one. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a political theorist. And Mm -hmm. I had to sort of talk about that. Um talk about both levels of the of the word about being a just person and also justice in the communal sense um so that was challenging that was challenging, very very challenging but I would say that maybe the one that i um, enjoyed learning more about i mean that just because that one was hard, let me think um yeah was um, mm-hmm, um well, again, maybe just to go uh, prudence again. Mm. I, they were—I don't know—they were all—they were all good. Temperance was was really challenging to mm-hmm. learn about, especially since um, in its you know in it, the way that Aristotle treated it, he was talking really just about our physical appetites, and I think we tend to use it in a broader sense now. So that mm-hmm. was interesting to think about because we because we just live in such an intemperate world yes. uh, today. We're, we're just so. Well, spoiled. I think temperance
0: might be the most un-American virtue out there (laughs) yes yes and mean temperance in this like for folks who are who are struggling with what what we mean when we talk about temperance it's not just like temperance as in I I think it got all befuddled with the temperance movement of of the 19th and 20th century where it was just about abstinence right uh an abstinence specifically from alcohol but really temperance is about a Temperate. moderation moderation um, moderation exactly of, exactly yes, yes, yeah and in, in every aspect in right. the physical and and um all other aspects of your life so mm-hmm. yeah yeah that sounds i i was wondering if you were going to say prudence or temperance because i feel like those two have such difficult shifty yeah, meaning yeah but I really love.
1: I, I, yeah, you, I can't pick the. Same. I, I think the the virtue that I felt like I understood a lot about, but then learned even more um, about, and also how it's applied is humility. Mm-hmm. The last, the last one in the book. Um, I mean, humility is just so interesting, and just to sort of, I guess, to sum up how I would um, say what it is, uh, because, because we, because so often humility, again, all these terms get misused or Mm -hmm. distorted. We think of it as like just an absence of pride. So that means just being very self-effacing and that's it. But humility actually is, it isn't just like acknowledging our limitations. It's also acknowledging the reality of our strengths too. Yes.
0: Yes. And no, it's knowing who we are. Yes. And that the, was the, the yes. literal, I mean, um, actually, the, the part of my obsession with virtue ethics stems from the fact that I my my doctoral dissertation was on humility in late medieval uh, oh. literature. Yeah, oh. so wow. I have, a, I have a, a, a obsession an obsession with humility because it is the most shifty, slippery mm. uh, virtue in the fact that as soon as you point it out or notice it in yourself, it sort of immediately becomes difficult to sustain (laughs) Um, so uh but but you're right um and I think this is one of the reasons why I was fascinated by it in in medieval literature and that was the first time I really came up against it as not an absence or a lack but as a positive force of Mm -hmm. of self-knowledge where it was this idea um of knowing yourself in all of your human frailty and Mm -hmm. also your your image of God status, um, yes, and the combo of the two, and that you are imitating the the God of humility who becomes incarnate, and that's so much bigger and more complicated than anything that's like, well, she's not prideful, or oh, she's so self effacing, <laughs> um, and it's a beautiful virtue. and And another thing that makes it really interesting is, is that it's not one that Aristotle or some of the other real mm. real uh, virtue ethics, you know, fountainheads would have thought of as virtuous. Um, it was uh, a specifically, interestingly Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it uh, is fascinating. So, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed that chapter of yours. But I think I was surprised. The one that I enjoyed the best of your chapters was, well, I guess there were two that I really liked, but um, the one that you did on Cormac McCarthy's The Road and Mm -hmm. Hope, Mm -hmm. I found really interesting, maybe just because we live in a time where uh, it's really hard to hope sometimes Mm -hmm. right now, or at least Mm -hmm. it is for me, maybe not for everybody, Mm -hmm. but um, I think hope is not, is seen as a little uh, naive or Mm -hmm. um, impractical or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really... Love that chapter, which is funny because I have to confess, I have not, I'm not a big modern literature person and I did have not read Cormac McCarthy's The Road. So, um, surprising, but it, I also it's really surpri- like, it, it's a surprisingly beautiful book. Yeah. So, yeah and really I really is I yeah. to go read it. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you've persuaded me, but speaking of persuasion, the other chapter I liked oh. was your one on persuasion and patience. <laughs> um, cause I just love Jane Austen, but Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, you have good taste apparently. So yes. <laughs> she's,
0: she's the best. <laughs> um, yes. Well, speaking of Jane, I know you mentioned at the start of this episode that you have a new podcast coming out. And I think Jane is in the title, right?
1: Yes, yes. It's in production and it's taking a while. So I don't know when it will be, um, probably early next year, um, meaning 2022. I don't know when this podcast will air, but, um, yeah, it's called Jane and Jesus. And it's, uh, so far it's, you know, we will have one season. We'll see how it goes from there. We're focusing on Pride and Prejudice and each episode will, um, center on a character from Pride and Prejudice. And I have, yeah, I have a wide range of guests from various backgrounds and fields. And it's just so fun because they just come at the novel from such very different points of view. And, um, and then I usually try to make some connection, you know, to Jane's Christian faith and my Christian faith, even though the guests, my guests are not necessarily Christians, but for me, you know, for me, um, I just see in Jane an exemplar of, of Christian virtue. And yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of people who aren't that familiar with Austin or just watch the movies or whatever, don't realize um, just how devout a Christian she was and how infused into her thinking and language um, her Anglican faith was. And so it's just, uh,
0: you know, it's just something I think needs to be drawn out. Oh, that sounds delightful. I look forward to listening. I'm a big Austin fan um so two final questions one the first one that I'm just curious about knowing that you are an avid and a professional reader (laughs) what's the best fiction book you've read recently
1: oh the best fiction book I've read recently um I would say, uh, yeah, so yeah, I I do so much reading most of his research. So um, it is Balzac and the, what is,
0: and the, Chinese little Chinese seamstress. Now I can't. Oh, I think even I, remember. I mean I, I, I have not read it. I don't know the title, but I've seen people talking about it. Yeah.
1: Yes. It's Apparently the novel is like twenty years old, and I only just discovered it somehow. I don't know even know I was reading something it was mentioned, and so I it just sounded like it was good, and I um it's it's it's, it's was just amazing. It was it's
0: really really good. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, relatedly, what's the best nonfiction book you've read recently?
1: Um, I am, okay, uh, let's see, the best nonfiction book that I read recently. Right now, I'm actually reading um, a, novel, a a work called High, I think it's called High Conflict. Um, and it's about conflict. and I'm pretty sure that's the title. Um, And it's very actually talking, we've vaguely sort of touched on some of these things in our conversation, but it's really very insightful into the kind of polarization and division that we're living in right now and Mm -hmm. how conflict just keeps getting amped up. um, And, you know, really the antidote to it all is virtue Um, Mm. but this this book
0: is fascinating so it's the one that I'm currently reading oh yeah that sounds very related to some of what we were just saying (laughs) Um, and then where can people find you online if they're wanting to seek you out seek out more about what you're doing
1: well, they can find me in a very unvirtuous and not very old-fashioned <laughs> place, and that is Twitter. <laughs> yes. um, my handle is ks prior. Uh, it's probably too easy to find me there because I do spend a little bit too much time on there. <laughs> but I do think I I do think that Twitter. Um, it's a different definitely a place where I have learned i'm learning to become more virtuous not always succeeding but I'm learning mm. but also it's a place where if you really do care about virtue and you do care about language and the power of language i mean it's it is a great place to test and try and grow um, those skills of language communication conversation um and virtue uh, now there's a lot of people who aren't on there for those reasons and they can ruin it but I think if one uses it intentionally, um, that is a place where we can develop
0: a things. So yes, Twitter, uh, I have an Wait, can I pause? can I yes. pause you for a second there? Yes. I'd love to hear more about how you think that t- Twitter can cultivate your virtue because uh, there's so much, well, there's so much negativity about the mm-hmm. impact of social mm-hmm. media for one thing. But mm-hmm. I think that's a really... Potentially very lovely way of thinking about it, and and so, what do you mean by that? Could you be a little more mm-hmm. specific?
1: Yeah, I mean it. it certainly, um, Twitter and other social media platforms, but especially Twitter, I think, is designed to do bad things. Sure, to us, the algorithm right? is nasty. Right, right, right. Generally. So it, its design is inherently destructive. I think, and so it it does take great intention and practice and patience. Um, and conscientiousness to use to to use the the platform in good and constructive ways because I think it can be can be that way uh, and I've seen it happen. So, for example, one someone just asked me a question today um, that is a whole treatise in, in virtue to answer, and that is when do you know when to engage with someone mm-hmm. you know in a loving way, mm-hmm. or when do you know to not amplify it by elevating that, you know, That's that great. ridiculous yeah, statement or A whatever. valid question on right, so right. many levels.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> so you could ask that question for every, you know, tweet, every, every ad, whatever, whatever it might be, you could ask, is this, you know, and, and we, you know, especially when we're engaging with people that we know, you know, are acquainted with we can ask you know what is the most constructive virtuous way i can engage with this person or because even ignoring can be a form of engagement and not ramp it up and so that's just one example of you know how do i how do this thing is out there what do i do in response do i ignore it do i respond to it um do i add to it do i Illuminate? Do um, so I let it pass by? Uh, now, again, this can be not the most the best way to spend our time when we could be reading books and talking to people and um, you know serving our neighbors. Um, but it it it's part of our reality, and so um, there is you know some of us. I would say I feel called to kind of treat it as um, a place where I can educate and set an example. Um, I don't, you know, always set the best, you know, I, I certainly make a lot of mistakes, but it's something that I want to use intentionally because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's shaped Twitter, you know, Twitter is shaping our world in, in ways that people who aren't Twitter aren't, aren't on Twitter have no idea. I mean, I think mm-hmm. almost everything that is happening politically, nationally, globally is driven by the kinds of things that happen on Twitter.
0: hmm Yeah. That's, I think that's right and really interesting. I only recently joined Twitter. And so far, I feel like I haven't really gotten the hang of it. It's it's kind of mysterious to me. But I really like that idea of it as an arena to practice virtue. And of course, I mean, in some ways, it's it's kind of redundant to even say that because that's every area in our life. But specifically right, right. in regards to Twitter is a really good thought, I think. And in a useful, helpful, encouraging one, um, and then and then your new podcast is coming out—that's another place people can find you. And then, do you have a website people can look at? Oh
1: yes, yeah. Uh, just a basic website where I have um, some links to some of my work, and you can see my speaking schedule if, if and when that <laughs> hopefully that's ramping up again.
0: Um, <laughs> and that's karenswalloprior.com. Great, thank you. Well, Dr. Pryor, I really enjoyed this conversation about virtue with you and about its relationship to narrative and fiction and old books. And thank you so much for coming on to chat with us. Well, I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I really enjoyed this episode with Dr. Pryor. I would love to hear your thoughts as well if you have any questions or comments about um, this great book on reading well, on the relationship between fiction and living the good life, the life of virtue or on virtue ethics themselves. I would love to hear them. You can find me on Instagram at old books with grace or on Twitter at grace Hammond PhD. If you want to engage with me and talk about these issues, I would love to. I also have a once a month newsletter on Substack called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. If you'd like to hear more about medieval literature and my thoughts about it, um, that's a really fun email newsletter to subscribe to, and I'd love to have you. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you rated and subscribed. These things help me out, and they help other folks find the podcast, which is great. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next time.